0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Today is May 25th, 2015. Our topic for today is going to be detox protocols. And, um, Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have our full crew today. Uh, Tiffany, Doug, Erica, and Gabby are all with us. And uh, Zoya will be joining us. Hi. <laughs> Zoya will be joining us later with her uh, pet health segment also regarding detox. So that'll be very informative. <clears throat> um, we're going to start out with some items from the news. Uh, and we have a few things to cover. Our first item here is talking about uh, <clears throat> the the recent bill uh, SB 277, uh, California Senate Bill 277, that is passed through the judiciary committee, uh, judiciary committee, and it needs one more committee's rubber stamp before it arrives on the Senate floor. Um, but it does look like it's actually making its way there, and what that entails is uh, eliminating the Uh, personal belief and religious exemptions from state mandated, state mandated vaccines for children. So that you would, uh, your kids would, would have to be vaccinated in order to attend school. Um, and that other penalties could be put in place, uh, if the government's vaccination schedule was not kept. And we have a, a little clip here. It's about six minutes, uh, that we wanted to play, which is some parents from California. Uh, talking about this bill and about the oppositions to it, so we 'll just play that for a few minutes here, and then we 'll be right back. Hey, sir.
1: Uh, SB 277 is a mandatory vaccination bill that would strip the right, the parental right of parents in the state of California to choose and to have informed consent over a medical procedure for their child, which vaccination is a medical procedure. And it is, if we don't choose to follow the CDC recommended schedule, which has almost tripled in the last 15 years, then our children are losing the right to not only a public education, but a private education in the state of California.
2: We're basically kicking out kids that are not sick, they're not contagious, on the supposition that they may in the future get a rare disease, and they might be sent to school with that disease, and they might get someone sick. So we're, we're kicking children out uh, based on that premise. There have only been 100 measles cases in um, the entire nation, basically, and there's 320 million people in the U.S. So that is not compelling interest when no one has died from the measles.
1: Initially on the bill, homeschooling was included in that bill as under the umbrella of SB 277. They have since amended it to exclude homeschooling, so parents do have an option. But for many families in the state of California, homeschooling is not an option. A parent cannot afford to quit their job, so they are basically going to be
2: forced to vaccinate their children, even if they've demonstrated a susceptibility to vulnerability to
1: the vaccine. A vaccine decision should be something that happens between a doctor and a parent. And you want to work with your doctor to make those decisions that you're comfortable with. You know, I need to vaccinate my children or else they don't get a proper education, which is their right in, it's a constitutional right. It's unconstitutional. It violates the Nuremberg Code. It violates education rights. It violates parental consent. It violates the relationship between a doctor and
2: a patient. I feel like it's discrimination. The California Constitution uh, guarantees a a right, an equal right to an education to each and every child in the state of California, regardless of, um, you know, their race, their, their, even, even kids with HIV, uh, hepatitis B and tuberculosis are protected under the California Constitution and are not supposed to be discriminated against based on a fear of contagion.
3: There's been a lot of adverse reactions, and I know a lot of people say, no, there's no link to autism and vaccines. But when you actually talk to parents whose children have been through it and they've been vaccinated and they've had these adverse reactions, those are the type of people
4: that I'm going to believe.
2: My oldest uh, got the chickenpox vaccine and got shingles in her eye following that. I have uh, my middle child who uh, wheezed after his two-month shot and was uh, diagnosed with full-blown asthma by 18 months. And my third child... Received a vaccination and went into anaphylactic shock following the DTAP shot. Uh, so basically, they're all on personal uh, belief exemptions because uh, it's just not enough for them to get medical exemptions. Uh, my youngest can qualify for a medical exemption for the the anaphylactic shock on the one vaccine. However, there are uh, numerous other vaccines, 15 other vaccines, that he would be required to get. My concern is that they have the same ingredients in them that he reacted to. Uh, I have no way of identifying which ingredient, which
1: put him into anaphylactic shock. We had started vaccination with both of my daughters. They both had strong reactions to the shots that they did receive. My husband is a paramedic. We're well-educated people. We both have college degrees, and we individually and collectively came to the understanding that the vaccinations that are currently on the market are not safe for our kids we had two children in Mexico die that were undergoing the national vaccination
2: program. There are six others in grave condition and 30 total that were hospitalized. And the country of Mexico has suspended the vaccination program based on this uh, occurrence. And we have uh, the same thing, you know, we've seen Japan. They do not vaccinate children unless they're two years old or older because of the risk of deaths. We have 16,000 kids a year in the U.S. dying from SIDS. We don't have an explanation as to why they're dying.
1: Vaccines are individually tested, and I would argue they're fraudulently individually tested. However, that's my opinion on the matter. But the actual schedule... The 49 shots by the age of 6 has never been tested to show that it's safe, to show that that amount of carcinogenic chemicals going into the bloodstream of a developing immune system is valuable for a child. And we have an increase in almost every neurological disease in children. One in five kids have a mental disorder. Autism's on the rise. It's one in 68 children. So it's, it's taking away parental rights. It's taking away informed medical uh, consent it's making the state responsible for your child's body rather than each individual parent doing their own informed due diligent research about vaccinations. And it's robbing a child of a public and private education. So I would encourage every parent, if you don't really know what's going on and you're wondering, what are we all talking about? I would encourage you to do your own research, look into the vaccination issue, go on the CDC website and pull up the ingredient list in every single shot and, and consciously look at that and go, am I comfortable with those ingredients being injected into my child's bloodstream and weigh, weigh the risk and benefit because that's what all of us have done and we've spent hours and hours and hours of our personal time, our energy, our our money, our resources researching, educating people about this issue so it comes down to a choice and SB 277 would rob parents of that choice. I encourage you to get involved in this issue. This is
2: a very slippery slope that you do not want to go down. Uh, if, we, if we allow the state to have the right over the sovereignty of our own bodies, where will it stop? Are they going to force us to take chemotherapy? Are they going to force us to take antibiotics for everything? We know that every single drug has risk. If you'd like to get involved and find out how to stop mandatory vaccination, please visit StopMandatoryVaccination.com and click on the Take Action tab to find a group near you where you can become involved.
1: Stop mandatory vaccinations!
0: All right, so that was parents from California discussing uh california sb 277 and um some pretty interesting information there i mean i think choice is the main thing that it comes down to um i think if you talk to a lot of people of course some people and i personally would argue that that vaccinations um there should be more information about them and, and some of them should outright be banned but that's my personal opinion um But I also think that, you know, every, it should be everybody's choice. If somebody wants to get vaccinated, I'm not going to stand in their way of doing that. But I also think that, um you know, people who don't want to get them should should also be allowed to make that choice. And if we see this, the state stepping in here and especially denying kids access to school and other services because of that. Um It's pretty damning. And I think those parents
5: have some very valid arguments and good points they didn't sound in any way wacky or crazy mm-hmm. or like conspiracy theorists or anything like that so. no
6: yeah that's true
0: well moving on into our um, <clears throat> connecting the dots uh with some recent uh items from the news here erica wanted to cover uh some information about big pharma advertisements what do you have on that
7: Yeah, so kind of in the same line of um, the video uh, audio that we opened with, um, this article is called President of Network News Division Confirms that 70% of revenue comes from pharma advertisements. And this was published on May 22nd of this year, uh, Jeffrey Jackson at National Blaze. Uh, natural blaze. Um and basically starts the article talking about uh Robert F Kennedy Jr. um he's doing speaking speaking engagements and in particular about the SB 277 in Sacramento. He was showing they were doing a showing of a movie called Trace Amounts, um talking about, you know, vaccines and toxicity and so this um discussion was kind of uh, mentioned in this article. Um, he's been on uh, the Bill Marsh HBO show to do some talking about it, and he also spoke at a major news event um, interview wow. with uh, Minnesota governor, or former Minnesota governor, Jesse Ventura. And so he had this to say, uh, I ate breakfast last week with the president of a network news division, and he told me that during non-election years, Seventy percent of advertising revenues for his news division comes from pharmaceutical ads, and if you go on TV any night and watch the network news you 'll see they become just a vehicle for selling pharmaceuticals. He also told me that he would fire a host who brought onto his station a guest who lost him a pharmaceutical account hmm. yeah, so we see that this is this inundation. Um, you know, of of just basically advertising to make money. And um, one thing that's interesting about Robert F. Kennedy is he's been speaking out. There was a great article, two articles actually on the Thought Health and Wellness section. One was Robert Kennedy Jr. Fights to Stop Vaccine Holocaust. And he even um, admits in both these articles that he had his children vaccinated. But he says this in this uh, article about the vaccine holocaust. They can put anything they want into that vaccine and they have no accountability for it, which ironically maintains its own exclusive and unconstitutional exemption from legal liability for vaccines that injure and kill children. And in his second article, it's called Thermosol or Thermarisol, Let the Science Speak. He says high stakes and the seamless marriage between big pharma and government agencies have spawned an opaque and crooked regulatory system. And an insatiable pharmaceutical industry has 271 new vaccines under development in the CDC's <sighs> pipelines in hopes of boosting vaccine revenues to $100 billion by 2025. So we can see, you know, that there's this huge big pharma push to get these things accepted. I mean, you can see this in these, this California bill. There was one that was also, um, discussed in North Carolina. And if anyone's interested in reading about that, um, the article is Senator explodes when questioned about his vaccine bill. And that was published May 23rd. And, um, you know, so you can see that these, that the big pharma is really influencing senators and lawmakers to pass Mm -hmm. these mandatory laws regardless of the side effects for children and you can see in that audio how parents are really upset you know I mean like you were saying Jonathan it is a personal choice and as we've said many times on this show like do your research and find out for Mm -hmm. yourself you know Mm -hmm. why you still can I mean we see this push state to state i know that uh based on um John, the kennedy discussion they they um stopped a bill in oregon to to make these vaccines mandatory but and in this uh, north carolina bill they also stopped it based on the fact that people are just not having it they're they're mm-hmm. going to fight for this you know this right for for their own children's safety you know as a parent so yeah, check those articles out because it's you can kind of see the line of force here. It's just it's coming fast and furious. And mm-hmm. as a parent myself, you know, you can be overwhelmed by the amount of information, but as long as you do your due diligence and research, you can start to see a, a very scary pattern developing here. Yeah,
4: I want to I want to give Bryce comment. I think um they're very desperate, Big Pharma, because people are wising up about the cholesterol myth. Statin drugs, which are low in cholesterol drugs, are big profits, you know, that they're going to lose, if, you know, it if, this becomes in public awareness of everybody cholesterol myth. And also because antibiotic resistance is putting, you know, a stop in profits in new drugs, uh, antibiotics, and so forth. So Big Pharma seems to be investing a lot in vaccines, you know, so... This deal has a lot to do with you know, with that, with them keeping their their profits, and you know, it sounds very psychopathic,
5: but that's what it is. Like. Yeah, once drugs go off patent, they lose a lot of money, so vaccines are a big way to recoup that loss.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, but speaking oh, of uh, advertisements, uh, you're talking about I've, I don't watch TV much, but. When you do watch the nightly news or, like, the national news, it's just one drug commercial after another. So I actually have uh, a short little drug commercials for stars, for uh, skin disorders. So I want to play that. But do pay attention towards the end, what they say about vaccines.
7: I'm Carrie D. I've had moderate to severe plexiglassis most of my life. But that hasn't stopped me from modeling. My doctor told me about Stelara. It helps keep my skin clearer. With only four doses a year, after two starter doses, Stelara helps me be in season.
6: Stelara may lower your ability to fight infections and increase your risk of infections. Some serious infections require hospitalization. Before starting Stelara, your doctor should test for tuberculosis. Stelara may increase your risk of cancer. Always tell your doctor if you have any sign of infection, have had cancer, or if you develop any new skin growths. Do not take Stelara if you are allergic to Stelara or any of its ingredients. Alert your doctor of new or worsening problems, including headaches, seizures, confusion, and vision problems. These may be signs of a rare, potentially fatal brain condition. Serious allergic reactions can occur. Tell your doctor if you or anyone in your house needs or has recently received a vaccine.
7: In a medical study, most Stellara patients saw at least 75% clearer skin, and the majority were rated as cleared or minimal at 12 weeks. Stelara helps keep my skin clearer. Ask your doctor about Stelara. uh
0: Well... <laughs>
5: So that's what, the kind of commercials, people in the U.S. I don't think – I think the U.S. and Australia are the only co- countries that are able to advertise drugs on TV. New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand. That's yeah. what we get bombarded with
4: day after yeah, day. It's the first time, it's the first time <laughs> I hear an ad like that.
5: <laughs> yeah, and they list they list all the side effects. There's 75% clearer skin worth getting cancer. <laughs>
7: Or neurological disorder. (laughs) A
4: potentially fatal brain disease. You say to your brain, and then it's like, whoa, ask your doctor to get this
7: drug. Yeah. Well, even how they set it up, you know, they give you all the benefits, then they read you all the side effects, then they go back to the benefits. (laughs)
6: Yeah, exactly. And
7: then
5: the part when they said, uh, tell your doctor if you need a vaccine or you recently had a vaccine, that just goes to show that people – this drug uh, compromises your immune system, and people shed live virus when they are vaccinated.
0: Well, that, <clears throat> Tiffany, I think that leads well into uh, speaking of the cancer risk. Uh, you wanted to cover yeah. an article here about psychiatric drugs and risk of cancer.
5: Yeah, the article was put up on the site a few days ago. It's called Psychiatric Drugs Put 49 Million Americans at Risk for Cancer. It was written by uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan. And in the article, she says that there are about one in five Americans who take psychiatric medications, which is a huge amount, Um and there's been literature that suggests that long-term treatment with psychiatric meds leaves you with a lesser quality of life, but there's been current uh, research that shows that psych meds also increase your risk of cancer. So a group of researchers, Amira et al., uh, they published this study in April of 2015, and this was only a review of the studies done on animals, so they're not entirely reproducible in humans. But the author points out that the information should be given to patients as part of their given informed consent on taking these medications, because the studies on humans are subject to publication bias, meaning that the researchers only publish the favorable results and they get rid of the results that are not favorable. So that's really sad because they have to resort to studying looking at animal studies because the human studies are so unreliable, yet the drugs are used on humans. Hmm. So that says a lot about our faulty uh, scientific system. So in this study, uh, the researchers found that uh, over 63% of antidepressants were associated with carcinogenicity, as in it causes cancer. And Those drugs are mirtazapine, uh, sertraline, paroxetine, citalopram, Escitalopram, duloxetine, and bupropion. Um, 90% of antipsychotic agents were associated with carcinogenicity. Um, uh, 70% of benzos or hypnotics were associated with carcinogenicity. Um, Those drugs include clonazepam, zolpidem, zolapthalon, diazepam, escopolone exaxepam and midazolam, 25% of amphetamines or stimulants were associated with cancer, um, and over 85% of anticonvulsants or mood stabilizers were associated with carcinogenicity. Um, the only agent that wasn't uh, was lamictal or lamotrigine. Um, so mm-hmm. the other agents that were associated with cancer were valprolate or depakote or valproic acid, carbamazepine, uh, gabapentin, pregabalin, oxcarbazepine, and topiramate. So the reasons that these medications can cause cancer is because they alter the gut biome, um, Mm -hmm. they alter metabolism, and they lead to drug toxicity, all of which can lead to cancer over time. And the really strange thing, speaking of drug advertisements, um, there's package inserts that come with all medications. So the researchers uh, who did this study, they got this information from the package inserts on the drugs because they have information about drug trials. So it's all there. So you just have to look. But how many people actually read the package inserts? And moreover, how many people actually understand what they're reading when they read the package inserts? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think many, very many people are doing that.
4: Yeah. It blew me so that, away, literally. Like 90% of antipsychotics, you know, language with yeah. carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. Like, what?
7: Yeah. Yeah,
6: yeah that's staggering. Like some
4: people, yeah, like some Gosh. people say, I don't read the, the inserts because otherwise I would not take the drug. I just, mm, maybe you should read it.
6: Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs>
7: And some people are on a multitude of drugs, too, you know, so it's not just one, but it's several different ones. Yeah.
5: It's never just
7: one.
0: (laughs) Well, on the heels of talking about all those pharmaceuticals, uh, Doug, do you want to talk to us a little bit about medicinal plants, some of the underrated ones?
6: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, So, yeah, there was a recent article in the health and wellness section on SOT. Um, originally published on Collective Evolution, written by Alana Kepler, um, on April 22nd. Um, And the title of it is The Most Underrated Medicinal Plants. So um, just off the top, um, she says that uh, there are thousands, if not millions, of herbs for medicinal use out there. Um, I would definitely agree with her on that. There are so many um, to the point where whatever you seem to be kind of suffering from, you can probably find an herbal uh, herbal remedy that will uh, at least help with it. Um, she covers uh, five different uh, herbs in this, just to give a kind of quick rundown of them. Um, and uh, she's kind of emphasizing ones that are fairly common and ones that you can find easily or in many cases can actually grow yourself. Uh, so the first one she covers is ginger, um, which is not only delicious, But uh, it also quells nausea, uh, has antibacterial, antioxidant, antiparasitic, and anti-inflammatory properties. And uh, through those anti-inflammatory properties, it's often used for things like joint pain, uh, menstrual pain, migraines. Um, It also contains uh, protein digesting enzymes that will help with digestion. And uh, it assists in the emptying of the stomach. So uh, anybody who's having any kind of... uh, um, Digestive issues can often uh, kind of quell that with uh, with a bit of ginger tea. Um, actually, I really like to cut up fresh ginger and kind of steep it in some boiling water. It makes for really, really nice tea. It can get pretty strong, so you've got to be careful with that. You might need to dilute it. Um, the second one she covers is peppermint, and this is one of my favorite herbs, especially when it comes to herbal teas. Um, it's really good for the respiratory system. uh, can be used in uh, treatment of coughs, colds. Uh, asthma allergies and even tuberculosis Um, you can also use uh, peppermint oil rubbed on the chest um, to to assist with uh, breathing and uh, lung issues Um, it's also good for digestive health and uh, one thing that's uh, really good um, to use it for is um, in IBS cases Uh, it has anti-spasmodic properties so um, you can actually, uh, you can find uh, capsules of peppermint oil that are enteric coated. Uh, and that just means that it doesn't dissolve in the stomach. It dissolves once it gets into uh, the the small intestine uh, in an alkaline environment. And by making sure it kind of it gets all the way down into the lower digestive tract, um, you can, uh, you know, it opens there and then that helps with the uh, antispasmodic uh, properties will like help with uh, spasms common in IBS. Um, it can also uh, ease digestive and abdominal pain. So if you're feeling uh, some pain after eating uh, the wrong thing, maybe, or eating too much, you can uh, have some peppermint tea. Uh, and it also helps with gas relief. Uh, third one she covers is chamomile. Uh, chamomile is widely known to relieve stress, uh, make you feel relaxed, and help with sleep. Um, but it also reduces swelling on the skin. It uh, can use it for psoriasis, eczema, chicken pox, uh, even diaper rash. Um, you can often find some chamomile creams for doing uh, topical usage, but you can also do uh, make a compress. Um, it also has antibacterial properties. Uh, it's anti-inflammatory, anti-allergenic, and anti-spasmodic. Uh, the fourth one that she covers is thyme. Uh, again, one of my favorite ones, especially for cooking. I just love the flavor of thyme. Um, but thyme also contains beneficial flavonoids, um, including ones called apigenin, nerogen uh sorry letolian and cymonin. Um and all these flavonoids actually protect fats in the cell membranes um and they actually increase the amount of healthy fats that you find in cell membranes. Uh thyme oil if you get the essential oil of thyme uh can be used topically for gout, bug bites, sores, arthritis, menstrual pain, nausea, fatigue, athlete's foot, and even hangovers. Using it as an aromatherapy, uh, it can actually strengthen memory, concentration, and calm the mind and nerves. Uh, the last one she covers is lavender. And again, using that one in uh, aromatherapy, you can use it for insomnia, depression, stress, and restlessness. And I know a lot of people will take uh, lavender essential oil and maybe just put a couple of drops into a bath to make for a very relaxing bath. If you uh, kind of put some uh, sodium bicarbonate in there as well, and maybe some Epsom salts, you'll have a bath that'll basically put you to sleep in no time. Um, it also, lesser known, um, is used to fight antifungal-resistant skin and nail infections. So you can use it topically for, uh, for that. Um, it also can relieve muscle and joint pain, treat skin disorders like acne, psoriasis, and eczema, uh, soothe insect bites, kill lice and nips, boost hair growth, improve digestion, and alleviate very alleviate various respiratory disorders, so it can be used in conjunction with time in a lot of cases because their their uses do tend to overlap quite a bit, yeah, and those are the ones that should cover. but like I said, there are you know thousands of different herbal remedies out there, so uh it's worth it to do some uh, some research on it uh, depending on what uh, what maybe you might be going through at any given time uh to find out uh, a good herbal remedy that you could maybe use for it. Awesome. Yeah,
0: I can, I can attest to the benefit of a lot of those, and I think one thing that's worth mentioning is that uh, a lot of people will kind of poo-poo the natural remedies because, well, they're not as powerful as pharmaceutical drugs, but people mm-hmm. that are taking pharmaceuticals for very basic ailments, like the one that Tiffany played about skin conditions, a lot of that can be mm-hmm. cleared up through the diet, and then any resulting mm-hmm. kind of complications can be cleared up using these natural remedies after somebody's diet is fixed.
6: Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is too that uh, a lot of these uh, herbal remedies are actually va- available in um, um, extracted form. So when they do standardized extracts of these uh, of these herbs, they can become very powerful. Um, you know, maybe just taking the herbs straight as it is won't uh, won't have as powerful an effect. But when you're when you're talking about uh, standardized extracts that are like twenty five to one extracts or something, those can be extremely powerful. So um, yes, yeah, the people who poo poo them uh, often are people who haven't actually tried them.
0: Mm -hmm. well let's go in um, uh, Gabby is going to cover for us as we kind of get into our topic about detoxing Uh, let's start off talking about uh, far infrared soundness Uh, do you have some information on that for us Gabby?
4: yes I reviewed the material shared by Sherry Rogers she's an environmental physician and she wrote one book called Doctify or Die and when I first read this book well it blew me away because It is really amazing research that I didn't know about, even though it was done by Mayo Clinic, very, you know, mainstream institutions. So, yes, I'm going to cover a little bit of this. And basically, by starting with the concept that sweat, you know, is one of the most effective ways to get rid of toxic chemicals, you know, lodged in your body. And uh, she reports how uh, saunas help heal drug addicts, firefighters, Vietnam vets. Pesticide pilots, consumers of polluted dairy, you know, but workers, you know, contaminated from occupations as diverse as electricians to farmers. And this is all very well documented in the literature, you know. And these are all very serious conditions, which uh, conventional medicine is powerless to help, you know. So, yes, sweat has also been um, a better you know, method for uh, for detoxifying uh, chemicals. It's better than chelation. It's better than the drug, surgery, or other detox method, you know. And, for example, in Europe, saunas are very famous uh, throughout the ages. And as an example, in North America, we have the um, example of Dr. William uh, Rea, that's uh, R-E-A. He's a pioneer in environmental medicine, and he, and he has the uh, – a health center in Dallas, the Environmental Health Center, and he has treated a lot of people with, you know, very serious conditions that are classically, you know, considered iatrogenic or or we don't know what causes it, kind of thing, disease, but very debilitating diseases. And one of the main um, components of his detox program is sauna, far infrared sauna. Initially, it was only a normal conventional sauna. And he was able to heal a lot of people. I personally know of two people who who were workers cleaning up after the Gulf oil spill. They were cleaners, you know, and they got very very sick. They got um, strange neurological syndromes that you know conventional medicine didn't recognize as as the consequence for uh, from the Gulf oil spill. And they went to this health center. And they healed. And basically, what Dr. Ria uh, used was vitamin C, other nutrients, and in, 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 the, in the intravenous nutrients, but far infrared sauna. And in um, the concept of far infrared sauna, is that um, you can heal a lot of problems with a conventional sauna, but not everyone can tolerate them. You know, people are so sick, they have such imbalances in the nervous system, uh, damage from toxic chemicals, and so forth, that they cannot even break a sweat or they cannot tolerate a conventional sauna. So especially those who have heart problems like heart failure, it is actually a medical contraindication to go into a sauna, you know. So, yes, so this is where far for saunas come in. It is the best and safest way to get rid of toxic chemicals, including pesticides, but also heavy metals, such as difficult to detoxify, such as lead and hydrocarbon residue. Um, when a conventional sauna makes you feel weak or just plain miserable, then you know you're a candidate for a foreign-fired sauna. And basically, a foreign infrared sauna uses heat energy that penetrates, uh, it penetrates tissues. And it triggers mobilization of chemicals from the fat storage directly into the sweat. And this is the key, because this activation, this penetration of heat energy in fat tissue, it allows lower temperatures to be used, so you don't have to force yourself to bear high temperatures such as 160 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. And you don't have to, you know, have uh, all the chemicals pulled into your bloodstream, which basically results in duplication of the symptoms from the chemical toxicity. Instead, with a sauna, the toxic chemicals slip from your fat directly to the sweat, bypassing the bloodstream. And when you use a barri sauna on a regular basis over weeks and months, the chemicals that are stored in the organs, they slowly make their way through the fat tissue uh, under your skin, and then they can be released uh, through the sweat uh, through the far-infrared sauna. And the far sauna, there are several uh, forms, uh, like a cabin. The most cost-effective one is like a blanket. It's a blanket of far-infrared sauna. And, um, but if we think of uh, all the money people spend uh getting diagnosed, you know, having all these lab work tests to diagnose very rare diseases that are, you know, incredibly common, you know, but conventional medicine doesn't know the cause or the cure, and all the drugs that people spend, all the money, you know, they spend on these drugs, any form of our for sauna ends up being very cost-effective, you know. And uh, people have to keep in mind that we're constantly bombarded by chemicals every single day. You know, tons of them. There is no corner on the world where you are, you know, free of them. And uh, the price for it is so it's, it's really very good investment. Uh, people with heart failure can do it, but also the elderly. And uh, we have to remember as well that toxic chemicals can damage, you know, the heart. And, um, uh, you know, and when there is heart failure due to toxicity, there is no safe way to get rid of uh, them, to, to, to get rid of them, except for a foreign fret sauna, you know. People can usually have uh, more heart problems or more palpitations, for example, when they use a regular sauna. But with a foreign fret sauna, these can disappear or decrease at least, you know. So there is no reported adverse effect of using a foreign infrared sauna, even for those who are very sick. Um, the very interesting thing is that people, some people with heart failure, this is what really blew me away because some people can get off their prescription medication for heart failure using a far-infrared sauna. This is something that is unheard of in conventional medicine. In conventional medicine, once you start with a protocol of drugs for heart failure, is one drug after the other after the other until you until you die, you know. The average, you know, survival rate in these 15 years is really it's a really problematical disease, you know. And most uh, problems of heart failure is due to toxicity. So some of the studies documented in the literature is that um, they discovered the benefits of faring for as a side effect, basically because they pe- they sent people home to die because they were not candidates for a heart transplantation they were either too old, too sick, so they sent them as an experiment with varnroid sauna, and that's it and some of the pe- some of these people um actually healed their heart function improved so much they were no longer candidates for heart transplantation you know. And this is all research that is even covered by Mayo Clinic, by the Japanese who are pioneers of this type of therapy. And uh, not even heart problems; it can be, you know, pine for have helped heal uh, pain and diseases in war veterans exposed to Agent Orange. You know, so that's mm-hmm. how dirty it has been. You know. um In even some studies, heart health can be improved in only three weeks. But as a general rule, it is recommended if you're very sick to do a far-infrared sauna for at least a year, every other day or even on a daily basis for an hour or less. And after that, it is recommended to do it at least uh, once a week for life, just because there is so much toxicity in our environment. And uh, what, you know... What some people don't understand why far infrared sound is so healing. Basically, uses energy like the one that comes from the sun. You know, it's um, it's a far infrared spectrum, which has the longest and most healing rays, um, and they are the safest and most vital to health and well-being as well. For example, this spectrum is responsible for photosynthesis, and without photosynthesis, there will simply be no life on Earth. <laughs> And the Far Infrared sauna then uses um, a ceramic, a zirconium ceramic, and it emits energy in the ideal range for deepest tissue penetration, which is about one to five inches. And um, the healing effect at the end it ends up stimulating your endorphins, which is your happy hormones. It helps kill bacteria and parasites in your body, and it detoxifies chemicals. As difficult as heavy metals, it really does detoxify them. It also improves lymphatic flow, blood circulation. So, yes, this is basically the general overview of the far infrared sauna. You know, I have tried it myself for years, and I really can attest the effects in people who have very debilitating diseases, how they can improve their lifestyle. Brilliant.
5: Nice. You know, I've used a far-infrared sauna, and if uh, you want to take a nap, just get in there, and 15 minutes later, you'll be asleep. Yeah,
3: <laughs> totally.
4: Yes.
5: You can get that's, in there that's... and wrap yourself up and read a book or watch a movie. It's extraordinarily relaxing. Yeah.
4: yeah, that's typically what I do after my shift work. You know, I just go into the blankets <laughs> and both sleep mm-hmm. there. Yeah. <laughs>
7: Yeah, I can attest for the infrared sauna as well. Um, I was never much of a sweater, really. And I had very poor circulation for most of my life. I always had cold feet and cold hands. And uh, several years ago, we started using the blanket as a family. We'd kind of rotate through it, you know, whoever wanted to turn. Even the kids got in it when they weren't feeling well to kind of sweat out any sort of sickness. But after about three or four months, um, the time it took to heat the body up and start sweating became less and less. And mm-hmm. it's really the skin being one of the largest detox organs. It's really um, an amazing sensation when you get out too. You you do feel cleaner, uh, you mm-hmm. know, have energy, more relaxed. I mean, there is just so many benefits. Yeah. yeah.
5: And I've noticed also, not just with myself, but with other people that I've tried it on, um the first time you use it you might not sweat that might be like just how toxic you are or you might sweat after your session is over so if mm-hmm. that happens just keep plowing through you'll eventually start sweating while you're still in the blanket <laughs> mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, and you can adjust the temperature too. So if you're, you know, sensitive to to heat, you can start at the lowest temperature, and then as you get used to it, you can start to turn the temperature up higher and higher. Yes,
4: I can also yeah, I can also cover a little, a briefly, a little bit of the guidelines. There is a lot of ways to do a for infrared sauna, but yes, like you guys just mentioned, you know, so people are so toxic that you're. Their sweat glands don't work anymore, but if you persist, mm-hmm. you will finally break a sweat. And, um, and then basically, uh, when you do a far-infrared sauna, you can do it with a detox protocol. There, there are um, three ways to divide your supplements when you do a far-infrared sauna. Uh, the first group is the replenishment nutrients, which are basically minerals. Um, magnesium, especially magnesium, and uh, drink enough water, and uh, also anything that will help you dilate your vessels because it opens up the channel, so to speak. It helps to flush out toxins. So you can do these several ways. You can either exercise for 10 or 30 minutes. You can have a massage, or you can take niacin, which is vitamin B3. Mm -hmm it produces a flush, it dilates your vessels, and the starting dose is 50 milligrams. And um, you can move up the dose depending if you have a flush or not. If you have too much of a flush, you can take Benadryl. But that's the basic concept. Basically, open up your vessels through exercise or through supplements. Take minerals, magnesium, drink plenty of water before going into the sauna. You can also take enzymes which, which help flush out toxins from lymphatics and blood, but you know, it's not, not, not strictly necessary. The second group of supplements is after you get out of your, after you get out of the sauna, which is basically the basic detox cocktail. A basic detox cocktail consists of vitamin C. If you don't have iron overload, you can take, you know, quite enough vitamin C without any problems. And uh, anything that contains glutathione, which is the great detoxifier of the body, is an antioxidant. And typically, alpha-lipoic acid or n acetylcysteine you know, both are precursors for glutathione. The good thing about alpha-lipoic acid is that it, you know, it's able to reach your fatty tissues, so that's very good. So, yeah, that's a very basic detox cocktail. And the third group of supplements is, any supplement which you might choose to take for a specific problem, or because you thought it was a great idea, that's best taken hours after the sauna, you know. Um, Sherry Sherry Rogers says 12 hours, but I think any point at six hours after after your sauna is good. And as for the for sauna itself, if you're very apprehensive, you're if you have a very debilitating disease, well, just start. You know, very, very simple. Um, people with heart failure can tolerate 60 degrees Celsius, which is 140 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 minutes without any problems. But, you know, you can even choose to go, uh, slower just in case you can start using the sauna at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 40 degrees. And, you know, just, uh, do short 10 to 20 minutes increments at first. Uh, building up to your body's tolerance. So that's a very basic guideline. There is no rule of thumb to do this. It's just basically if you're very sick start the slowest lower temperature and build yourself up. And depending on your schedule, if you're a very busy person, you can do 15 minutes twice per day or four times per day. It should be better. So yes, so the idea is to get some detoxifying going because whether you like it or not, we're exposed to tons of chemicals every single day. Whether you live on the mountains, on the North Pole, or in New York, well, those are more exposed, definitely. <laughs> but we are exposed.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point, is that <clears throat> something that maybe a lot of people don't think about is that these days, uh, you don't necessarily need to live next to a, some sort of, you know, manufacturing plant that kicks out a lot of exhaust or in an old industrial area in order to receive these toxins. They're pretty much everywhere. <clears throat> you know, there, there may be a few bastions of clean air left on the planet, but they're very few and far between. <clears throat> well, let's, uh, Thank you, Gabby, for covering that. Uh, Let's go into another aspect of detoxing, uh, which is intermittent fasting. And uh, Erica is going to cover that a little bit for us here today.
7: Yeah, since our show today is about detox, um, another excellent way to kind of stimulate the detox pathways in your body is intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is kind of just an umbrella term for various diets that cycle between a period of fasting and non-fasting, so eating and not eating. Um, it's one form of calorie restriction, which is self-explanatory, restricting the amount of calories that you eat. I um, have four articles here that are really helpful, and I'll uh, list them as I go through the information uh, for people who want to learn more about this. Um, it's really ideal uh, on a Ketogenic diet, you know, uh, high fat, low carb, because you kind of don't have that hunger pains that you have on a on a high carb diet. Um, the first article I wanted to share is called Intermittent Fasting. This is what happens to your body, and it was um, published in 2014 in November by Arjun Walia on Collective Evolution, and um, Basically, it says intermittent fasting is not an extreme or dangerous form of dieting. It's actually a very healthy practice that's loaded with a number of health benefits. And according to the article, it's about timing your meals to allow for regular periods of fasting. Recommendations for allocating time throughout your day to go without food range from approximately 12 to 16 hours. One example is only eating between the hours of 11 a.m. and 7 p.m., and the author goes on to emphasize, and I'd like to emphasize as well, it does not mean binge eating in between your fasting periods or loading up on junk food. He also says it's really important on how you break your fast. We kind of had this discussion earlier before the show about, you know, you don't want to do your intermittent fasting and then go eat a hamburger with a bun and all this stuff because you know it could really affect you in negative ways. Um, the second article is called "Intermittent Fasting is a Powerful Healing Modality" and this is by the website Primal Doctors. It was uh, published in 2013, and the doctor is or uh, David jo- Jockers is his name. And basically they list the benefits. Um, It reduces oxidative stress and um, inflammation. It improves levels of sugar and fat circulating through your blood. Also cuts blood pressure. It enhances cellular repair responses. It's a key strategy for anti-aging and longevity. Um, Enhances synaptic elasticity and in this article it says it's possibly also uh, increasing the ability for successful recovery following brain injury. So basically it reboots your brain. In rodents they found um, intermittent fasting was shown to protect animals against diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and uh, neurological degeneration. In humans it helps reduce obesity, hypertension, asthma, and rheumatoid arthritis. It also improves metabolism, and the body is more, becomes more efficient in fuel burning. So um, the third article is Intermittent Fasting Supercharges Your Brain and More, and it's the same um, author. This was published in 2014. Um, and leading scientists now believe that intermittent fasting is one of the key strategies for maximizing brain function. And I wanted to share here um, the strategies that they share. So they, they uh, from all the articles, it really emphasized the importance of already kind of switching your diet, so getting off the standard American diet, you know, high carbs, uh, sugar, dairy stuff like that and then um, the uh, the strategy that they offer is so the best way to begin fasting is by giving your body 12 hours between dinner and breakfast every single day and this is recommended because uh, four hours is about the time you need for complete digestion and eight hours for the liver to completely de- complete its detoxification um, cycle After this is a standard part of your lifestyle, try taking one day a week and extending the fast to 16 to 18 hours. Eventually, you may choose to do a full 24-hour fast each week. During the fasting period, it is great to drink cleansing beverages, herbal teas, water, and um, even water with lemon or apple cider vinegar. And these uh, enhance the cleansing process by providing antioxidants and micronutrients that enhance healing while not interacting with insulin or high HGH levels. Um, another important aspect is the precautionary step before fasting. So as I said earlier, before one begins a lifestyle of intermittent fasting, they should remove as much sugar and grains from their diet as possible. And, um let's see, this will create better blood sugar balance and help regulate insulin and the stress hormone called cortisol. The diet should be built around good fats, antioxidants, clean protein. If you take three to seven days to stabilize blood sugar and stress hormones before intermittent fasting, that would be most advised. And then the last article that I wanted to share um, is much more in depth and it goes through explicitly explaining all the benefits I listed above. Um, It's called The Myriad of Benefits of Intermittent Fasting uh, by Mark's Daily Apple. And that was published in 2011. And um, he just does make a note about calorie restriction. Uh, you know, it's all the rage in aging circles. And, um, he says that's a little bit more stressful. And, you know, it kind of takes a lot of energy to count your calories and whatnot. So he says, um, intermittent fasting is the best way to have your cake and eat it too, which is kind of a joke, mm-hmm. but uh, beyond the already proven benefits of a, a keto diet or a primal uh, blueprint low carb lifestyle, he calls it. Fasting once in a while seems to offer many of the same benefits as calorie restriction. You know, stuff like increased longevity, neuroprotection, increased insulin sensitivity, strong resistance to stress, cool effects on the endogenous hormone production, and increased mental clarity. So he's saying that fasting becomes a lot easier and intuitive when you've got your diet, your food dialed in, right? So you're already on a low-carb diet, high-fat. And then at the end of the article, and I just wanted to share this because I thought it was interesting, he said that, you know, in his experience, overall fasting seems just right. It's like a reset button for your entire body, presumably across a large spectrum of maladies and dysfunctions puts your body into repair mode at the cellular level and it can restore normal hormonal function in the obese and overweight. I don't plan my intermittent fastings. the author says, I let them happen. I prefer to fast when it's forced upon me like when I'm traveling or under a deadline. Once you've acclimated to the primal diet give it a shot and report back. And so I know many of the co-hosts here have done intermittent fasting and I will speak of my own experience. It just starts to become a a, a normal way of life. You know, um, here in our house, we usually eat breakfast um, and then we eat before five o'clock in the afternoon, and then we do the intermittent fasting until the next morning. And you mm-hmm. really um, don't need to eat five meals a day like so many people recommend. Um, there is also a, a good article um, from the Keto Diet Home blog. It's called The Complete Guide to Intermittent Fasting. And they kind of go through and break a lot of the myths One of the myths is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um, You know, I I personally eat breakfast every day. I find that uh, breakfast of bacon and sausage and eggs with lots of butter helps me get through the entire day until Mm -hmm. dinner. Um, I have a lot of energy. I do a lot of physical labor in my job, so I never feel sluggish or hungry. And then also supplementing things like bone broth or a fat tea or coffee drink. Um, So just one little note from that article, the complete guide. Once you're keto adapted, you don't depend on glucose. And so you don't need to eat those five um, small meals a day since your insulin levels will not spike. You won't need Mm -hmm. to eat regularly small portions so you can eat you know one meal or two meals and get the satiate from the food right mm-hmm. and um, they did say compared to calorie restriction uh, intermittent fasting is not restricted in calories it just simply limits your eating windows to a few hours a day and in fact you usually fast for 14 to 20 hours or even up to 36 hours so mm-hmm. Do you guys want to share anything? Anybody have any kind of added experience to that or
6: Well, I personally yeah, I regularly um don't I I don't generally eat breakfast. I usually have two meals a day and it'll be lunch and dinner and then I won't eat again until, you know, afternoon the following day. So I I'm regularly like I've incorporated intermittent fasting into my day pretty much all the time. And uh yeah, I I never really feel um, hungry during it or anything i mean being on the ketogenic diet it just uh you, you do just your body seems to just switch into um burning its own fat stores um while you're you're fasting so yeah there isn't there isn't any hunger or or cravings or anything like that
5: yeah, and after i eat breakfast uh, if i'm at work i can go all day i don't have to take a break and stop for lunch or Stop for a snack here and there, like I used to have to do. I just eat breakfast and eat dinner. Sometimes I'll have a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh.
4: I, I, sec- I second that. Uh, I have breakfast, and uh, usually people at work will have to have like five meals or snack, you know, very frequently. And I'm like, what? So
7: much food! What are do we? Do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean it's it just it seems like the benefits are just so amazing i mean i know i can speak for myself and the other hosts like uh you just your levels of energy um are amazing and you don't feel that hunger sensation and like you all shared i go through the same thing i don't even feel hungry and even in the in the collection of these articles they all kind of say the same thing like you you find that you're not even thinking about food and it's been 12 to 16 hours and Mm -hmm. yeah
6: well
0: on the topic of uh of food, And since we're talking about the, the diet and cleaning up your diet, uh, I, by the way, I've had a very similar experience. Um, they've come to just like eating breakfast, um, get very little hunger throughout the day, um, eat dinner and then don't feel like snacking, you know, and then bre- pretty much breakfast and dinner every day. Um, where I used to be on that pattern of what you mentioned, uh, where, you know, you're eating at least three meals a day and then snacking in between just all day long. Um, and that was mostly a carb-based diet at that time, lots of carbs yeah. and sugars. So.
6: Yeah, um, it's funny because uh, visiting uh, visiting friends um, a while back, I um, you know I was I was eating with them, so you know we had dinner around six o'clock or whatever, and um, it was funny because around eight o'clock or something like that, all of a sudden they start pulling out all these snacks. Like, you know <laughs> they, they pulled out some nuts to snack on, and like cheese and crackers and all this kind of stuff, and all I'm all thinking, is how can you guys be hungry? I don't understand this at all. You know, I, I feel like I just ate. I, it, it was it was kind of crazy.
0: <laughs> well, on the on I the think, topic of diet, oh, go ahead, Tim.
5: I think a lot of people want to eat again after a couple of hours because they get that blood sugar spike when they eat, and then mm-hmm, their sure. blood sugar drops back down, and they want to eat again just to stop the roller yeah. coaster.
4: Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, I'm
7: just
6: like, but we just ate. What do you mean we
7: eat again? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I almost wonder in social situations if it's just there to kind of uh, keep people, you know, entertained, the food Mm -hmm, situation.
0: (laughs) Sure. At least if things are awkward, you can snack on something instead of just sitting there and staring at each other.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can text instead. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Doug, Doug, do you want to talk about the diet a little bit? We we were going to talk about detoxing as well, just through changing your diet. And I know intermittent fasting covered some of that, but I think we have some more information to share.
6: Uh, sure. Was I going to cover uh, metals first, or should I go into the diet stuff first? <clears throat> well, it's your choice. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. since we're on the topic, I guess I could go into the into the the diet stuff. So, what I was basically going to talk about is just how um, the ketogenic diet, in and of itself, is a kind of naturally detoxing. Um, you know, most approaches to detoxing involve like a high carbohydrate, low fat, low pre- protein um, uh, composition, um, and they also tend to recommend avoiding animal product. product uh, sorry, animal products. Um, just because they're, you know, considered inherently bad. You know, it's considered uh, some kind of burden on the body to be eating any kind of uh, animal foods. Well, we've covered on the radio show here and have been uh, covering on SOT for a long time that this is actually just not the case. Um, You know, when I'm talking about, like, most approaches to detoxing, I'm talking about things like uh, juice fasting master cleanse, box cleanses, things like that. Um, They also tend to load people up with fiber and laxatives um which generally is not a good idea. I'm going to get a bit into uh debunking um some of the uh the cleansing protocols out there uh, later in the show, but I'll just say for now that it's not generally a good idea to load up on that sort of thing. Um you know, the idea behind these these approaches is to give the body a break from all the quote-unquote bad stuff um or what is perceived as bad stuff anyway, like uh, animal products in particular, um to allow the body to kind of get rid of these stored toxins. Um The problem is that by depending on carbohydrates for energy, um, you're keeping your insulin levels high and your body can't access its fat stores to burn them. So all of these cleanses that involve uh, high-carbohydrate eating are essentially flawed because they're actually blocking you from accessing your fat stores, which is where most of the toxicity tends to be stored. Um, On the other hand, being on a properly formulated ketogenic diet, um, you're naturally detoxing um, just by the nature of the diet itself. Um, So, because uh, toxins uh, have an affinity for fat, uh, they're what's called lipophilic, um, but also because the body needs a place to kind of sequester these toxins, um, much of the the toxicity in the body is stored in the fat, um, just so it won't uh, interfere with uh, important cellular processes by kind of being in the cellular matrix. Um, Getting your body into fat burning mode, um, you know, by lowering your carbohydrate consumption to near zero, and uh giving it no more than its minimum daily requirement for protein uh it'll start burning these fat stores and therefore releasing these stored toxins um, there's uh you know some speculation that's the uh part of the dreaded uh, low carb flu and i don't know if you've heard about this before but when people first uh transition to a ketogenic diet they sometimes kind of feel crappy, almost like they've got the flu, they have some body aches, they feel really tired, that sort of thing. Well, some of that might actually be uh, from the release of these toxins by burning your own fat stores. Um, you know, some of it, I'm sure, is because, uh, you know, your body hasn't switched over to uh, primarily fat burning mode for all its energy, so um, you're not getting all the energy that you need. But, uh, yeah, like I said, there is some speculation that some of these uh, symptoms might actually be detox symptoms. Um, Once you transition to ketosis, uh, one can try undergoing uh, what's known as a fat fast um, to more readily burn stored fat and cleanse the body at a deeper level. Um, A fat fast uh, involves lowering the total calorie consumption to about 1,000 to 1,200 calories per day um, with 80 to 90% of those calories coming from fat. Um, So you are lowering your calories when you do a fat fast, but... um, you know, you're you're still taking in some fat, so you're 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 not hungry per se. I mean, you might feel uh, like you need to kind of eat a little bit more, but uh, it, it's fairly easy to get over that with a little bit of willpower. Um, these are short-term fasts; they usually last a maximum of five days, uh, so it avoids um, going into your protein stores uh, to make up for amino you know, acid deficiency. Um, your body will, if it doesn't have enough protein for a long period of time, it'll start breaking down your lean muscle mass. Um, to make up for that protein that it's missing, um, but any fast that actually causes a loss of muscle mass is not a beneficial fast. Um, you should not be um, breaking down your muscle tissue. That's uh, it's important to keep that. Um, and by taking in the fat, fat actually has a protein sparing uh, effect, where um, you know even though you're not taking enough calories in, uh, because you're getting enough fat, um, you won't actually uh, your body won't start breaking down its own muscle tissue. Um, but even outside of doing like an actual fat fast, simply by being on the ketogenic diet, um, it does mobilize some of that stored fat and uh, releases some of those toxins to have a cleansing effect. Um, it's important to keep your protein levels low enough to have this cleansing effect, uh, because high protein consumption will increase your insulin levels, and that will prevent you from getting at uh, your body from getting at that fat to burn it. Um, also, you know, a paleo-ketogenic diet will avoid, just naturally avoids, a lot of the toxic foods out there that you find in the average diet. Um, so you are giving your body a break, um, hopefully permanently, from uh, all these harmful conti- constituents. So your body's not having to sequester all those toxic elements into the fat tissue. Uh, this includes things like gluten, uh, casein, plant defenses, heavy metals... Um, anti-nutrients, herbicides and pesticides, sugar, GMOs, all that sort of stuff. So just by uh, transitioning to a paleo-ketogenic diet in and of itself is a cleansing diet. It is a detoxing diet. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who are on this diet don't really, um, you know, aren't diligent about kind of restricting their protein. Um, you know, they'll, they'll go over on their protein levels quite frequently. Um, and I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as you're not overdoing it. But I think it's good to kind of get strict every once in a while just to do this kind of cleanse to like, you know, if you, if you, if you are feeling the need to kind of do a cleanse, this is a perfect way to do it.
0: Yeah. Well,
5: that's
0: a great. Oh, I was just going to say that's a, that's a great summary of, of, that process I mean I noticed a similar thing too when I switched Um, there was there was maybe about a a year or two years where I was kind of tapering off from the old bad diet into like a looser kind of paleo diet and then into the keto diet and Mm. uh, I definitely had um, periods of detoxing where I noticed uh, you know heavy um, symptoms of that and I got I went through the quote-unquote keto flu for about two weeks and it was pretty Mm. rough but from from everything I read that that it was exactly what you described as those toxins being released into the system. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah. Yeah. My approach well, to, uh, um, fat, fat, uh, sorry, to intermittent fasting that Erica was talking about is actually, I'll, I'll usually do, um, a fat fast, um, uh, on a daily basis. So when I wake up in the morning, I might have like a fatty drink, like, a um, a fat tea or a, um, you know, a, a butter, hot cocoa or, or, um, a butter coffee or something like that to, uh, just so I'm, you know, I, I'm not really craving any kind of calories or anything like that first thing in the morning. I'm just, but I'm only taking in fat. So my body is still in that kind of cleansing, um, you know, uh, detoxing mode, but, uh, I'm taking in calories still. So it, it's not, I'm not hungry at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Tiffany, were you going to say something there?
5: I forgot. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about heavy metal detox a little bit. Um Doug, if you want to mm. give an overview of that.
6: Sure, yeah. Um this information comes from uh uh Sydney McDonald Baker, uh MD. Uh he wrote a book called Detoxifi- uh sorry, detoxification and healing. And uh, it's a pretty great book. Um, It goes through a lot of different detox protocols. um, And he does talk about heavy metals at one point. So I'll just kind of cover briefly what he says about that. Um, He says that there's many different toxic metals out in our environment that we're exposed to. But he kind of concentrates on three of the most common. uh, That being mercury, lead, and aluminum. Um, So mercury... Uh, we get exposure from uh, old thermometers. You don't see too many of these around anymore, but you can still. Back in the day, they used mercury in thermometers, and if those ever broke open, you'd uh, you'd be exposed to those mercury vapors. Um, I know back in the day, like you'd see kids actually playing with uh, with mercury, to, you know, because it is kind of a cool thing. It's liquid at room temperature, but it's very heavy, so you know people um, used to <laughs> really love playing with it. But I think we know a little bit better now not to do that. Um, for that fluorescent lights have mercury in them, particularly those uh, compact fluorescent bulbs, which are supposed to be so environmentally friendly but uh, contain quite a bit of uh, mercury. Um, Industrial pollutants, uh, vaccines, uh, sea vegetables, um, fish. Fish is kind of a, uh, you know, ocean fish, it's kind of uh, controversial because a lot of people talk about the amount of mercury you actually find in fish, but most fish actually have uh, very high selenium content and uh, selenium actually binds with mercury, and when it's in that bound state, you don't actually absorb any of it. So, um, yeah, it, you know, I, I still try to stay away from eating too much of the of the the large uh, predatory fish like uh, tuna. Um, but uh, you know, it might not be quite as dangerous as as everybody t- tends to say it is. Um, and of course, there's a you know the radiation consideration and PCBs and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just the mercury you have to worry about. Um, And probably the most common exposure is from dental amalgam fillings. I know dentists have kind of moved away from using the mercury fillings, um, although they'll still swear that there's absolutely nothing wrong or dangerous about using mercury to fill your teeth. Um, But you have to think about every time you chew or do anything, you're releasing those uh, mercury vapors from those amalgams. Um, So yeah, uh, Dr. Baker does say that uh, it is a very good idea to have those amalgams removed from your mouth. Um, You definitely want to find a dentist who knows what they're doing. Um, who's familiar with the process and knows how to do it in a safe manner so that you're not getting exposed to more mercury while, while that happens. Um, so mercury vapor enters the body via the lungs. Uh, oddly enough, mercury doesn't enter the body via the skin or the intestines. Um, it's just the, the vapors that really uh, pose, pose a threat. Um, also, interestingly enough, there's a million-fold difference in how individuals will react to mercury. So some are extremely sensitive and others won't seem to react at all. So, it, like, that's pretty incredible. That It's 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 a thousand-fold to a million-fold difference in, in the, the range of how different people react to it. You know, one person rea- um, may be exposed to a minute amount of mercury and have a severe reaction, and others uh, exposed to that same amount won't seem to notice at all. Um, signs of toxicity could uh, include fatigue, eczema, irritable bowel, acid reflux, it's intermittent urinary urgency, pain, foggy thinking, Uh Mood swings, nervousness, irritability, uh, insomnia, headaches, abnormal sensations or muscle twitching, tremors, weakness, muscle atrophy or decreased cognitive function. Um, yeah, it's it's actually kind of difficult to tell how much mercury is in the body. Um, blood tests and uh, urine tests aren't very reliable. It seems that the most uh, reliable way to do it is through hair testing. That's where they take a sample of your hair, like you take a small. Um, sample of hair and they test what's in there Um, and they can test it for a a lot of different uh, metals and other toxins. Um, That seems to be the most uh, reliable but there's also a way of doing it uh, what's called a provocation test and that's where you take um, a chelator like uh, DMSA or EDTA and then you test the urine. So that's basically taking something that kind of sucks some mercury out of your tissues and then they can test that and see how much is actually in there. Uh, The next one he goes into is uh, lead. Um, lead exposure is less of an issue these days because uh you know within the mainstream they're they're perfectly uh um kind of up to speed on how toxic lead is so it's been taken out of things like paint and uh and gasoline and things like that uh You do still get some exposure though if you're exposed to any old paint you know in like old housing or old plumbing or things like that there can be uh lead in there um there's still stuff coming out of China and uh, Asia and stuff that has lead in it, like uh, ceramic glazes, uh, cheap cast iron pans can sometimes have, uh, have lead in them. Um, so lead becomes deposited in the bones because it has a similar structure to calcium. Um, and aside from acute lead poisoning, small repeated exposure over time can lead to problems. Um, So, symptoms of lead exposure include uh, problems of attention, learning or behavior problems, uh, seizures, abdominal pain, headaches, and irritability. Uh, Another one he goes into is aluminum exposure. Uh, Aluminum is extremely common in the natural environment. So, exposure can only be limited to a certain extent. Um, You do find it in baking powder, antacids, uh, antiperspirants, uh, aluminum pots and pans, aluminum foil. Uh, it's in uh, many uh, immunizations. Um, we actually excrete a great deal of aluminum, but some of it does get uh, left behind. So if you're in a situation where you're taking in about uh, 50 milligrams of, uh, of aluminum a day, you'll usually excrete about 49 uh, milligrams of that. So you're getting rid of most of it, but some of it does stay behind. Uh, the problem with aluminum is that uh, it actually binds to DNA and interferes with its functioning. And once it's bound on there, it won't come off until the cell actually dies. Um, Mm -hmm. There is no method for actually ridding the body of aluminum, Um, so avoidance is really key there. Um, So, dealing with these uh, heavy metals, uh, treatment usually involves putting in uh, good molecules uh, to kind of bind onto the bad and usher out the toxic elements. Um, These molecules are called chelators, and that comes from the Latin chela, meaning claw. So you can picture these little molecules are kind of like claws because they kind of claw onto these toxic elements and then they uh, allow the body to excrete them. Um, so some of these uh, chelators, um, one uh, pretty good chelator is one called chlorella. Um, that is a blue-green algae. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, it's good for uh, chelating heavy metals, particularly mercury. Um, another good one is cilantro. Uh, cilantro is something you can find at pretty much any grocery store, um, it tastes great, uh, some people seem to have uh, uh an issue with it, they don't really like the taste, uh, apparently they're actually missing an enzyme in their saliva that helps to break it down, so they end up thinking it tastes kind of like dirt, but uh, I love mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but uh, that's also a, a good metal chelator. So these are two things that you can kind of, you know, supplement or or just kind of add to your diet in many ways. And, and you'll be kind of uh, giving yourself a bit of a cleanse all the time. Uh, fulvic acid, um, which is actually kind of a product of um, the breakdown of organic matter. So uh, breakdown of leaves, um, sea matter and things like that. You can get fulvic acid supplements. Uh, they're great for um, chelating heavy metals. Um, also ones like uh, EDTA which is used in uh, in kind of mainstream uh, hospital uh, situations as well as a chelator for dealing with uh, uh, severe uh, cases of, of toxicity. Um, and there's another one that you can, I don't know if you can actually get it anymore. It's called DMSA. Um, mm-hmm. I, we used to be able to get that in Canada just off the shelf in health food stores, but I haven't been able to find it recently. Uh, it might be a little bit more difficult to find. Um, but uh, Sydney McDonnell-Baker actually goes into – um, a DMSA protocol. Uh, DMSA is a great—it's a—it's a sulfur compound that's actually really great at uh, removing metals from the tissues. Um, and he has a whole protocol where you kind of have a 14-day cycle, um, and for the first three days of that, you do the DMSA as well as a bunch of other supplements, and then you take 11 days off. So you do three days on, 11 days off, three days on, 11 days off. Um, and over that time, you're taking other supplements as well to kind of uh, help the body to kind of get rid of stuff. You can't just do it outright um, because it can be uh, very difficult. Um, you go through a lot of uh, detox reactions from this. Um, so you do need to kind of be, be sparing with it. Um, when you're dealing with lead, uh, vitamin C is very good for helping to get rid of uh, lead as well as uh, vitamin B6 in the form of uh, pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Uh, calcium is actually very good because it will actually um push the uh the, the lead out of the bones um as well as using d m s a or e t a so that 's a little bit on the uh on the metal stuff
0: cool well that, <clears throat> just to uh just to interject here for a, a, a little bit um, uh erica mentioned that uh, erica you had you and uh your husband had some uh, personal experience with uh, mercury and arsenic detoxing. Would you mind telling us about that a little bit? Oh, did we lose Erica?
7: Maybe. Nope, sorry, I'm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, Doug gave a really good overview and I just wanted to share um, a little bit of experience with mercury toxicity and arsenic also, which wasn't mentioned, but um, uh, as Doug said in the, uh, in his discussion, you know, uh, my husband and I um, had our hair tested, a hair analysis. We were working with a doctor out of Los Angeles and He did a hair analysis so we could see uh, our mineral content and just kind of things that were in our body. And we were really surprised to receive the results. We both had very high levels of mercury and arsenic in our hair samples. And it turned out that um, it was from farming. We were organic farmers on land that had been heavily um, treated with herbicides and pesticides for years, uh, old sugar cane land. And, you know, we were putting in a organic farm and basically cleaning up the soil. And we were obviously receiving a lot of that toxins, whether it was through the air, as Doug had explained, or just hands-on experience, you know, um, digging in the dirt. And my husband had a very severe reaction. He also, around the same time, had um his mercury amalgams taken out of his teeth, and they did not do the proper procedure. So I think that a lot of exposure came from that as well. Um, All the symptoms that Doug listed were experienced by him, um, you know, and as his wife, I was very concerned, you know, oh my gosh, is my husband starting to get Alzheimer's or, you know, and he just did not feel good. I mean, this went on for months. And we did do the infrared sauna uh, during that time, several times per week to start the detox process. We also did the detox protocols that Gabby mentioned in Detoxify or Die. And um, it was about six months, you know, of, of being very regimented, we ended up moving off the farm we were on because our concerns were so grave you know and because we had children working down there too it was um, just not a good scenario but it took six to eight months for my husband to really eliminate all of those um, side effects and after about a year we had our hair tested again and um, for both of us The uh, levels of mercury and arsenic went down considerably so Hmm. I can say from experience that these protocols work you know there's uh, times where you kind of suffer through it and we live in a very warm tropical climate so getting into the far infrared sauna when it's 80 degrees and 80% Hmm. humidity is not the most (laughs) enjoyable (laughs) but uh, I will say it literally was a life-changer you know Um, in addition with the diet, I mean, my husband is, has come back 100% and has more energy than he's ever experienced since he was like 12 years old. So, um, you know, I will say from personal experience that this was life changing. And, you know, as a farmer, I would have never known to check for those things. You know, you assume you're outside, you're, you're working in the soil, you're breathing, you know, we're in Hawaii, so we have very, clean air because of the trade winds that blows a lot of the pollution away. But we are also massively inundated with toxic chemicals in the soil and in the air and the spraying. Mm -hmm. And for those who may not know, we are like number one test site for GMO technology. And it's Mm -hmm. literally taken over, you know, sugar cane is no longer grown in Hawaii, but now we're like the GMO seed producer for the nation. So I I really recommend if people are having any of those symptoms, you know, even the mood swings, the fatigue that um check out the mercury detox protocol because it, it can really uh do be a life changer. Um mm-hmm. it's it's quite mm-hmm. amazing to experience. So mm-hmm. that's a greatest morning. Mm-hmm. And I will add about uh what uh Doug said about the fish that was the first thing I asked because we do have a lot of fish you know here, uh both reef fish and deep sea fish, like uh tuna or ahi, it's called so that was the first um question I asked the doctors. You know this high mercury content we're experiencing is this because we eat fish in our diet, and you know at that time we were probably eating it three or four times a week. And he said, "No, actually, um, in addition to the agriculture exposure, I would say, if you're eating a lot of seaweed, because we do have a lot of sushi here, people eat a lot of seaweed, that that um the, the seaweed is like the sponges of the ocean, and it picks up all sorts of heavy metal toxicity in the ocean, so mm-hmm. um you know, that that could have been another part of it. So wherever it was coming from, we managed to um, cut it in half with these different protocols. So uh, I'm Great. a firm believer.
0: Great. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, um, <clears throat> let me just briefly cover uh, along the lines of uh, heavy metal detox and also uh, chelating um, Radioactive materials, uh, edible clay, uh, French green mm-hmm. clay specifically. It's referred to, it uh, has other names, um, <clears throat> mineral names. Uh, there's uh, several different types, uh, but you can look for montmorillonite, um, bentonite clay, and uh, elite, I-L-L-I-T-E. Um, and I L L I T E. And I actually use a, a mix of this uh, that I got from a, a, a vendor who makes healing clays. Um, and uh, it can be used internally. Oftentimes uh, people just use it externally for skin conditions and things like that, but there are specific types that can be used internally. Um, you just want to be very careful on how much uh, you use and the kind of uh, protocol that you follow. Um, so if anybody's curious to check out uh, green clays, um, I can tell you the basic method of use is to start out by mixing a little bit in with a glass of water. Usually like, a quarter teaspoon, it's a very small amount, in with a, uh, an eight-ounce glass of water, <clears throat> and let it sit overnight. And then the next morning, uh, just drink the water after the clay has settled to the bottom. So you just drink the, the water solution that's on top and basically toss out the, um, the clay material that's at the bottom of the glass. You do that for five or six days for the first week and that essentially primes your digestive system to the presence of this clay. And then you can start mixing the clay in with the water and actually drinking that internally. Um, mm. Some people use this daily uh, for many years without any negative side effects. Other people experience some constipation. Um, I think mostly that has to do with kind of overdoing it at the beginning. Um, I use it off and on. Uh, so, you know, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there with usually like a month or two in between. Um, so it's it's very good for a number of different things, and I'll just I'll keep this short, but just to list off some of the benefits from uh, the website uh, aitonsearth.org, which is e y t o n s e a r t h Um They have a lot of information there about uh, internal and external use of clay, but here's just a, a small list of the uh, benefits of using bentonite, montmorillonite, and illite. Um, To assist in the removal of toxic substances in the digestive system, both chemical and pathological, bacterial food poisoning, organic and inorganic toxicity, to cleanse the colon and promote proper bacterial balance in the intestines, to begin the process of detoxification of the liver, to stimulate liver function, um, a part of the short-term cleansing programs used to promote good health, critical to support external healing clay treatment, so you can use it internally and externally at the same time removal of heavy metals and recover, recovery from chemical therapies from radiation, uh, and with certain special long-term treatments to increase T-cell count and fix free oxygen in the bloodstream, a reduction of free radical damage, improved immune function, and improved cellular respiration. Um, and it can also uh, have the effect of reducing food sensitivities. So <clears throat> it's got quite a wide range of things, but there are also some interesting historical aspects um, to, to clay. It was used, uh, around the area of Chernobyl, uh, when the disaster happened at Chernobyl, um, specifically it was fed to the cattle, uh, to, to detox the the cattle from radiation so that the meat could still be fed to people. And they also actually put it into chocolate bars and pass those out, um, so that people could receive the clay to, to have some radiation detox themselves. um, so if you look up uh, French green clay or specifically bentonite clay and radiation detox, uh, there's a lot of information on it online, but that's just my my little aside on on green clays um, Next up we yeah. have here uh, oh, go ahead
7: oh, I wanted to say that also um on the skin uh clay yeah. acts like for for uh, insect bites is really helpful because it kind of sucks the poison out sure I've used that before too or um, skin irritations obviously not if you have an open wound do you know Jonathan if it's okay with an open wound but um I do know I've used it on a pretty mean spider bite in the past and it's really helped with the inflammation of it
0: yeah honestly I'm not certain about that um when I had uh shingles, I actually used it on the shingles sores. The only negative thing I came across was that when the clay dried, it irritated the skin really bad because it was cracked and then it was moving around this really sensitive skin. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if you were going to use it on externally on sensitive skin, you want to make sure that you rinse it off immediately after it dries so that you don't have this yeah. rough, you know, interaction. Um, mm-hmm. Also, one thing I, I forgot to mention is that Generally, uh, the clay should be used uh, like two to three hours after you take your supplements or before. If you're Mm -hmm. also taking supplements because it is such a powerful chelator, Uh, the the clay particles, if you look at them under a microscope, look like little sponges. And they can actually chelate the supplements that you've taken as well. Um, So Mm -hmm. you want to space it out with other things that you're actually trying to absorb. But... um, yeah, it looks like uh, next up here we had Tiffany wanted to cof, uh, cover coffee enemas, which is a, uh, a a very little covered topic, I think. Um, I've spoken with some people about this in the past, and they're like, enemas with coffee? What do you mean? So, <laughs> t- t- Tiffany, do you want to explain that a little bit?
5: Sure. Once again, I'm on booty duty. So um, <laughs> everybody's talking about things you put in your mouth. So we'll go to the other end now. <laughs> uh, uh they've been using water enemas for uh for thousands of years, but uh coffee enemas go above and beyond because they have a multitude of benefits. Water enemas are really just to cleanse out the bowel, relatively speaking. But uh coffee enemas first came into fashion during the first world war. Um Nurses were looking for a way to relieve the pain of soldiers who just had operations. Um, They typically used water, but one nurse, uh, either accidentally or on purpose, tipped some coffee into the enema bag and gave it to a patient, and the patient said that he had a reduction in pain. Um, He also had a reduction in constipation from the anesthesia. So that's how coffee enemas came into regular use. Um, one of the biggest proponents of coffee enemas is Dr. Max Gerson. Um, so he uses a coffee enema along with nutritional guidelines to treat cancer. And he says the major benefit of the coffee enema um, is to enhance the elimination of toxins through the liver by triggering increased bile flow. Um, the bile alkalizes the small intestine and it promotes improved digest- digestion. Um, so how does it work um, Coffee contains theophylline, and that dilates the blood vessels and increases blood dialysis across the colon wall. Coffee, of course, contains caffeine as well, and it has two forms of palmitic acid called cafestol and caweol. So when you give yourself a coffee enema, you're skipping the digestive tract, and the caffeine and the palmitates are absorbed through the bile directly into the bloodstream, and they make their way to the liver. Uh, caffeine also causes the expansion of the portal vein in the liver, and it causes the bile ducts to expand. And the bile is released release, and it toxins out of your body by triggering peristalsis, which is the contractions in your muscles, and you can flush out your waste. Um, the palmitic acids are also important, and this is the main thing that makes coffee enemas so great, Um, It increases the production of glutathione, and glutathione is a master antioxidant and a detoxifier. So the glutathione is produced by the liver, and it binds to the carcinogenic compounds, peroxidized lipids, metabolized drugs, and any kind of toxins that you might encounter in your environment, and it can also remove heavy metals like mercury. So glutathione latches on the toxins and it serves as an escort um, and it ushers them out of the bile. So when you give yourself a coffee enema, the amount of glutathione production goes up by 600 to 700 mm-hmm. percent above the normal rate of glutathione production. It's uh, much cheaper than getting the glutathione IV, and it's better than taking glutathione or What's that? No.
0: I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so Seems it's better
5: so than taking glutathione orally. So if you take uh, glutathione orally, there's debate that it um it's not absorbed that well, and enzymes in your digestive tract break it down. Um, I saw one study where they were giving people 1,000 milligrams of glutathione daily, orally, and they only absorbed, say, maybe 30 to 35%. So um, there's a lot of videos on YouTube, people actually giving themselves coffee enemas on video. They don't show any of their bits or anything, but they show you how to do it, so you can look those up. Um, One caveat is that if you are suffering from ulcerative colitis, it's probably a better idea to heal your gut first before you attempt to do any kind of coffee enema. So the first thing you want to do is get some high-grade organic coffee. I know that in Sherry Rogers' book, Detoxify or Die, she says that you can use folders or anything, but I say get the best coffee that you can get. Um, if your budget allows for it, go for it. Um, you also need an enema kit, which you can find at any drugstore and on Amazon. Amazon, they also sell this kind of fancy-schmancy Enema kit with a stainless steel bucket. So if you really want to do that, you can buy one of those, too. So you get yourself two tablespoons of brown coffee. Uh, Some people say two tablespoons, others say three. If it's your first time, you might want to start with one tablespoon and see how you react to it. Some people are more sensitive to caffeine than others, um, you may want to do it in the morning versus nighttime until you see how the caffeine affects you. you don't want to be up all night after you do a coffee enema. Um, so you have your two sta- tablespoons of coffee. Uh, you use filtered water, purified water, never use tap water. And you want to grind it up, the coffee, put it in a pot with two cups of water, let it simmer for five to ten minutes, and then allow it to cool down the body temperature. Some people use their coffee maker. I just use it on the stove stovetop. <clears throat> um, when your coffee's done, you can filter the coffee grounds. You don't want to put the grounds in there also. Um, you add your, your filtered coffee to the Enmo bag. Make sure the tubing is clamped. You don't want it all to flow out of the tubing when you pour it in there. And then when you get all the coffee in the bag, you open up the clamp and... Uh, Flush the coffee out to get the air out. And then you can hang it on your doorknob in your bathroom or at least 18 inches off of the floor. You don't want to put the bag up too high because the flow will be too fast and that can be kind of uncomfortable. Um, you want to use a, a lubricant like coffee, uh, not coffee, uh, coconut oil on the nozzle just to make the the tubing easier to insert. So put some towels down on the floor. There might be a tad bit of leakage. Um, And lie down, there is some debate, too, about whether you should lie down on your left side or your right side, because I was in nursing school. They said if you do an enema, put the patient on the left side just because of the way of the anatomy. But I was reading that um, if you want to do a coffee enema, you should lie on your right side because it gives the coffee easier access to the um, hepatic or the liver portal vein to make it more readily take up the coffee. But I think that either way it goes, uh, the coffee is going to get to where it needs to go. So lie down on your right side. Um, let the coffee flow in slowly. If you feel an urge, a very strong urge to go, you can clamp the tubing. You know, take some deep breaths, relax, wait for a while, and then open the tubing back up again. You want to take in the whole two cups. Some people like to leave the nozzle in while they're doing it. Other people take it out. I personally take it out um you can um you wanna hold on to this coffee enema for at least twelve to fifteen minutes. Um, I start on my my right side or my left side. I stay on that side for about five minutes and then I roll onto my back, stay there for five minutes, do a little abdominal massage, and then roll onto the right side depending on which side you start on. And then uh, just relax. You might want to read a book or something. Um, Hold it for 12 to 15 minutes. You don't want to hold it for more than 15 minutes because uh, you don't want the bile to get reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. And while you're doing it, you should hear a lot of gurgling noises, like on your right side especially. That's your, your liver is releasing bile. Um, And after the 15 minutes, get up, get on the toilet, and release it all. Um, If you can't hold it for the entire 15 minutes, that's okay. You can work your way up to it. Um, It's very important, but I forgot to mention to you, make sure you have a bowel movement before you do the coffee enema. You want to make sure there's nothing that's going to be blocking the flow of coffee. Um, if you're very constipated, you might want to do a water enema first and then do the coffee enema. Um, so while you're releasing this substance, you might feel a little bit nauseous. You might notice a metallic or kind of a polluted smell more than usual. Um, that's just a sign that you're really detoxing some stuff and the coffee enema is working. And I always say it's better out than in, so just let it all out. Um Again, with Dr. Max Gerson, um, he's given coffee enemas daily or several coffee enemas daily, depending on how sick his patients are, like if they have cancer or something serious like that, um, without any ill effects. I've also read that coffee enemas don't excessively kill off the good bacteria in your gut, but I can't find much evidence supporting that. But I would assume that any enema that you give yourself is going to to kind of clean out both good and back, bad bacteria, so if you're taking a, a nice, good quality probiotic, you shouldn't suffer any ill effects from taking a coffee enema. Um, after your coffee enema, you might notice that you have a boost in energy levels, uh, increased mental clarity, an improved mood, a uh, decrease in chronic pain, and improvement in allergies. So another thing that I ran into, which I thought was a joke when I, when I first read it, but uh, there's an ancient description of enemas, and it was written about 2,000 year two thousand years ago, and it was found allegedly in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the section called the Manual of Discipline. So I thought I'd kind of wrap up with that, um, which is weird. One of the authors that I found this uh, little snippet of, said that uh, it was done during the time of Jesus, and the Master Jesus used these methods to perform his miracles of healing. That's uh, huh. funny on several different levels, <laughs> picturing Jesus giving his acolytes in <laughs> a but I'll just go ahead and read this. Um, okay, so here it is. Think not that it is sufficient that the angel of water embrace you outwards only. I tell you truly, the uncleanliness within is greater by much than the uncleanliness without. And he who cleanses himself without but within remains unclean is like to tombs that outwards are painted fair, but are within full of all manner of horrible uncleanliness and abominations. So I tell you truly suffer the angel of water to baptize you also within that you may become free from all your past sins and that within likewise you may become as pure as the river's foam sporting in the sunlight seek therefore a large trailing gourd having a stalk the length of a man take out its inwards and fill it with water from the river which the sun has warmed hang it upon the branch of a tree and kneel upon the ground before the angel of water and suffer the end of the stalk of the trailing gore to enter your hinder parts, and that water may flow through all your bowels. (laughs) Afterwards, rest kneeling on the ground before the angel of water, and pray to the living God that he will forgive you and all your past sins. And pray the angel of water that he will free your body from every uncleanliness and disease. Then let the water run out from your body, that it may carry away from within it all the unclean and evil-smelling things of Satan. Then you shall see with your eyes and smell with your nose all the abominations and uncleanliness which defile the temple of your body, even all the sins which abode in your body, tormenting you with all manner of pains. I tell you truly, baptism with water frees you from all of these Renew your baptizing with water on every day of your fast till the day when you see the water which flows out of you is as pure as the river's foam. Then betake your body to the coursing river and there in the arms of the angel of water render thanks to the living God that he has freed you from your sins. And this holy baptizing by the angel of water is rebirth unto the new life. For your eyes shall henceforth see, and your ears shall hear. Sin no more, therefore, after your baptism, that the angels of air and water may eternally abide in you and serve you evermore.
0: <laughs>
5: Wasn't that beautiful?
0: <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's definitely the most eloquent description of an enema I've ever heard.
7: <laughs> A spiritual enema.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When you started reading, I thought it might have been kind of metaphorical, but nope, it sounds like they were describing an enema for sure.
5: Yeah, that's why I thought it was, it surely could not be true. But it's very <laughs> eloquent and beautiful description. I do have to give them that. And just imagine, they were just talking about water en- enemas. Think about how beautiful it would be with a coffee enema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, coffee enemas are great. Do try them. Don't be afraid. Mm.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for all that information. That's Sorry you got stuck with the booty duty again. We really <laughs> appreciate that.
5: <laughs> I don't mind booty duty. <laughs>
7: don't poo-poo the what? booty duty. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: well since uh since we're running a little bit short on time we're not short we're not going to run out for a little while but we are we're going over our usual length uh but uh before we go to Zoya's pet health segment I know Doug wanted to talk a little bit about some of the popular detox methods that are really out there in the mainstream and uh debunk a few of those like the master cleanse do you want to talk about that for a few Doug
6: yeah, sure. You guys can hear me okay now, right? I was having some issues. Yeah. For a second. Okay, good. Yep. Um, okay, yeah, just to, to kind of go through this as quickly as I can here. Um, so as I say before, like a lot of these cleanses out there kind of emphasize a low, uh, or sorry, a high carbohydrate, low fat, low protein approach, usually vegetarian. Um, talking about things like juice fasting, the mastered cleanse, um, some of the boxed cleanses that you get out there, um, in health food stores and stuff, like psyllium husk, that sort of thing. Um, so the idea behind these is that animal products are bad and that we need to give our bodies a break from them. Um, but uh, it's based on a completely incorrect view of human physiology and what is actually bad for us. Um, so what we know, as we do here at SOD and um, talk about quite frequently, that uh, the body more efficiently runs on fat uh, we can see that these detox plans are really little better than mainstream holistic health plan, um, and they may actually do some harm. So starting off with probably the most popular one is the Master Cleanse, um, sometimes also referred to as the Lemonade Diet. Um, it was uh, concocted by Stanley Burroughs in uh, the 1940s and kind of uh, ended up revived again in 1976, and it's kind of been with us ever since. Um, it's a fast, uh, involves no food, Uh, The only things that are allowed to be consumed are uh, a lemonade mixture made of uh, fresh squeezed lemons, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper and water. Um, As well, you're allowed to have water and herbal teas. Um, It's essentially a starvation protocol. Uh, The only energy taken in is sugar uh, in the form of maple syrup, uh, meaning the body that has little ability to access fat stores and actually um, get to any of the built-up toxicity that's actually in there. Um, there's no protein provided, so the body has no recourse but to break down its lean muscle mass um, to recycle the amino acids that are uh, needed for all the necessary biochemical processes. Um, Especially when you consider the fact that most people are doing this fast for at least 10 days. That's what they recommend is the uh, the minimum, with a maximum of 40 days. So you can Mm -hmm. imagine how much um, protein your body is missing out on there and how much uh, lean muscle mass is actually breaking down. Um, so pretty much all the weight loss that's achieved on the Master Cleanse is actually a loss of muscle mass, not a loss of fat. Because as I say, if you're drinking sugar constantly, uh, your body doesn't have access to those um, those fat stores because your insulin levels are high. And whenever your insulin levels are high, your, um, your insulin um, discourages um, actually uh, like uh, getting a bit of fat that uh, to be burned. Um, so people do report good things on this um, on this fast. Uh, but surges in energy, which are often reported, but usually uh, intermittent with uh, periods of fatigue, um, are likely from adrenaline in response to low blood sugar. And uh, shouldn't necessarily be looked at as a, a beneficial thing. Um, you know, when your body is running on adrenaline for uh, 10 days, that's not really a good thing. Um, most of what's said here about the master cleanse can also be applied to juice fasting. Um, that's, uh, you know, fasting where people are drinking, they're doing fresh squeezed juices, um, through the, uh, throughout the period of the fast. Um, and, but it's the same kind of thing. Basically you're surviving on sugar. Um, you know, whether it's uh, a lemonade mixture, you're making up with maple syrup or just the natural sugars present in vegetables and fruits that you're, you're having during your juice therapy. So that's the same kind of thing. Um, and speaking of, uh, juice fasting, uh, Tiff actually mentioned Dr. Gerson. Uh, there's something, a cancer protocol known as Gerson Therapy that was uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, created by uh, Dr. Gerson. And it's a doctor-supervised anti-cancer protocol that involves uh, extensive vegetable juicing. Um, mm-hmm. It's a predominantly vegetarian diet uh, supplemented with uh, hourly with consumption of organic juices and supplements. Um, animal proteins are excluded from the diet, um, under the unproven premise that tumors are developed as a result of a lack of pancreatic enzymes, um, it is said that uh, acute leukemia, brain cancers, and pancreatic cancers do not respond well to uh, the treatment, nor do Parkinson's or ALS, but they, they say that uh, the rest of, uh, of cancers will benefit. Um, the problem is that uh, people need to remain on this protocol for two to three years to see any benefit. Um, In some cases, people have remained on the protocol for five years to see results. Uh, Some on the diet have suffered from different things, including electrolyte deficiencies, particularly sodium, uh, due to the complete lack of salt on the the protocol. Uh, The National Cancer Institute evaluated Gerson therapy and found no evidence that it was beneficial. Um, It suffered from methodological flaws, and no independent entity has been able to reproduce the claims. Now, mind you, not that I'm going to take the National Cancer Institute's word for it, um, but uh, I, I, just looking at the way this therapy works, I, I do um, kind of have some some problems with it. Um, yeah, so do so I. I yeah, you probably yeah. have
5: better luck doing fat fasting or ketogenic diet along with
6: healthy animals. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think that that's very true. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of research out there showing... Um, the potential benefit for a ketogenic diet in addressing cancer. Um, you know, the, the, the simple way of putting it is that tumors feed on sugar. They don't have the ability to uh, metabolize fats. So by taking all the sugar out of your diet, going low-carb, and feeding yourself on fat, you are essentially starving it. Um, but anyway, getting back to the, the Gerson uh, therapy here, there was a 1994 article in the Journal of Naturopathic Medicine uh, which attempted to follow 39 of Gerson's patients in uh, Tijuana Um, Reviews of the study found it to have obvious flaws including the majority of patients lost to follow-up, lack of access to detailed medical records, and a reliance upon patients for disease stage information. Uh, Even the authors of the article themselves regarded the results as unclear. Um, There may be some benefits to Gerson therapy um, in that it gets people to remove a lot of the harmful elements from their diet, it um, loads them up with a lot of uh, antioxidants that you'll find in plants, um so all of that can be beneficial for for um, cancer therapy um however, because it is high carbohydrate and cancer eats sugar, um its benefit will likely be negligible It's kind of like taking uh one step forward and one step back um and as i meant, as you know we just mentioned uh you know, you'd probably be much better off doing uh fat fasting and ketogenic diet um instead. Um, lastly, just to quickly go over these boxed cleanses that you got, find in uh, health food stores a lot, um, these things usually just load you up with a lot of fiber and laxatives, um, as uh, as well as supporting kind of elimination organs. There's lot, usually some uh, liver support in there, uh, kidney support maybe, um, but uh, you know, essentially it, it's really just kind of like forcing fiber through the digestive tract. Um, the colon cleanse idea has been fairly thoroughly debunked, and that's not mm-hmm. to discount anything that was said about uh, enemas, because certainly they they are very beneficial. But um, you know, there's this idea that these mucoid plaques kind of build up in the colon um, and cause what's called auto intoxication, which basically means that the colon is sitting there reabsorbing a lot of this toxic stuff that's fermenting in the uh, in the colon. But uh, this hasn't really ever been supported by any actual evidence. Um just as mm-hmm. an aside, I've actually got a friend who is a colon surgeon and he's opened up like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of colons and he says he has never found anything like that. He's never seen any of this kind of like plaque. You know, I've I've heard of, of, of these holistic practitioners talking about having uh, you know, this black kind of paste on the inside of the colon um because the colon is so dirty, but he says he has never in all the colons that he's opened up. And he's opened up some pretty sick people, and he's never seen any of this, other, this kind of stuff in there. But this is all, um, you know, to support the idea that we need this, this fiber, this harsh kind of fiber to scrub down the inside of the colon, um, when really there isn't much evidence that they're actually needed for that reason. Um, psyllium husks and other seed-based fibers are actually quite harsh. Um, they stimulate the intestine, making it uh, contract, And uh, it can actually lead to dependence. So, people who are taking the psyllium husk on a daily basis in order to be able to go are actually basically taking uh, laxatives. And, um, you know, it does definitely uh, uh, lead to uh, dependence. Um, A good book on this uh, is called The Fiber Menace. And uh, I forget the name of the author off the top of my head. He has a big, uh, big, long name, but I don't remember what it is. Constantine
5: Um, Merskowski or something like that.
6: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Constantine. Mm -hmm. Whatever the last name was there. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's a great book. Um, it's actually very funny. Um, but uh, he, he talks about how, um, you know, this this kind of obsession with uh, fiber is actually quite damaging. Um, that being said, some of these box cleanses are actually pretty good. Um, ones that don't concentrate on fiber and laxatives, but uh, they might emphasize antifungals and probiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, Or there's a few homeopathic cleanses out there that can be very beneficial as well. Um, They usually tend to be very gentle. So they're not uh, these harsh kind of like, you know, scrub down the inside of yourself kind of approach. Um, And these could definitely be done in conjunction with a ketogenic diet. Um, And, you know, especially when you're transitioning, as we were talking about before, you know, when you're mobilizing all these kind of toxic substances, um, they need an exit. So doing like a cleanse or doing some clay or doing chlorella or something like that at the time when you first start uh, um, kind of moving over to the ketogenic diet can be very beneficial and might actually lower the symptoms of that low-carb flu. Um, But as usual, discernment is the key when you're looking at these cleanses. Um, So, I mean, you do see some people reporting some short-term benefits from these kinds of cleanses, like they'll report, you know, clearer skin, clearer eyes, um, clearer thinking even. Um, increased energy immediately after undergoing these protocols. But, you know, really how much of this is attributable attributable to simply getting away from the usual crappy food that they normally eat? And how much is actually from, you know, some of the benefits of the actual uh, cleanse itself? Uh, you know, I think taking you know liver-supporting herbs is certainly beneficial. Uh, things that support the kidneys, the lymphatic system, all that stuff certainly uh, is, is stuff that could be done and could have uh, a lot of benefit. But uh, it's really when you get into um, the the loading up on the fiber and laxatives that I think you need to you need to kind of use use your discernment there.
0: Right on. Well, we can see that, <clears throat> like Doug mentioned, there are many. Um, of these popular methods that are out there. And I, I notice them every day when I go to the local, you know, kind of health foods co-op, there's mm-hmm. a, a full shelf full of these mm-hmm. different things, all cleaning, you know, different results. But um, <clears throat> I think basically just to reiterate what Doug said, you need to look at the common sense of it, especially regarding mm-hmm. cancer. Like, it, you know, cancer feeds on sugar. And so you need to take those things out and then replace them with healthy fats, limited mm-hmm. animal proteins, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, let's let's go to Zoya. Um, She has some information here uh, for us today about detoxing regarding your pets. Um, So this is about 11 minutes, and then we'll come back with our recipe for today, which is going to be roasted bacon chicken. So we'll clue you in on that uh, after Zoya's pet health segment.
2: (laughs)
3: Hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. Today we are going to talk about detoxification for pets, but first I would like to talk a bit about something I heard the other day during the annual student research conference at my university. One of the students presented a research on the topic of prevention of hepatic lipidosis, or in other words, fatty liver disease in cattle. She mentioned several statistical facts, and some of the facts had to do with the percentage of occurrence uh, in various countries. In Belarus, for example, it is up to 60 percent, while in the U.S. it can be as high as 80 percent. And the high percentage is due to the fact that U.S. dairy cows have a much higher milk production rate than Belarusian ones. Actually, fatty liver disease is considered to be one of the main problems of the uh, highly productive cows, including many other metabolic diseases, such as ketosis, uh, which is a very serious problem for herbivores. So at the end of the student's presentation, one of the members of the conference committee stood up and presented a rather rhetorical question, saying that perhaps Belarus shouldn't be so eager to increase milk production if the best preventive measure is to keep the milk production as low as possible. But as I said, it was a rhetorical question, because the reality of the situation here and elsewhere in the world, that economic considerations and how much milk one can get from a cow in a short period of time, uh, weigh at weights the consideration of her health. So the whole idea of prevention really has to do with cutting costs of treatment and upkeep. I talked about the abuse on dairy farms in one of the previous shows, so I'm not going to expand it anymore now, but just wanted to give another example of the absurdity and lack of conscience that happens all around us. As for the pet detoxification, I found a good article by Dr. Karen Becker that outlines main principles and offers a good protocol that you can follow. First, why do you need to detoxify your pet at all? Many animals live their lives without going through cleansing or detoxing process. Well, perhaps it's not necessarily in all the cases, but it surely may assist with keeping your pet's health on the optimal level. The fact is that today our pets are bombarded by hundreds of dangerous toxins in the environment. These include radiation, environmental pesticides, lawn and home chemicals, electromagnetic fields, heavy metals, animal hormones, and antibiotic residues. Uh, There are toxic preservatives in pet foods, and mycotoxins in kibble and allergens. Our water sources contain fluoride and other toxins. And there is a second category of toxins in addition to the, those listed above. The chemicals and pesticides that many pet owners uh, intentionally put on uh, or in their dog or cat to repel fleas, ticks and other types of parasites. And then there are vaccines, dewormers and drugs that are routinely given to pets by veterinarians. As if all these toxins alone were hazardous enough, most pets also have some level of chronic low-grade inflammation present in their bodies that causes metabolic stress. Nutrients that assist in healthy detoxification are depleted under stress, making the body even more susceptible to damage. So, in order to counteract these influences, your pet's body must be supplied with adequate resources for both cellular detoxification and organ-assisted detoxification. The primary organ of detoxification is the liver, which cleans the body through a two-phase system. Phase one turns environmental toxins and bodily wastes into intermediate metabolites that then require antioxidants as well as a conjugation through phase two detoxification for the complete neutralization and excretion of the toxins. The op-ed's body relies on a number of nutrients, antioxidants, and cofactors to support. The mechanism of both phase one and phase two detoxification pathways to protect against free radical damage. To assist in liver detoxification, Dr. Karen Becker recommends taking glutathione. It is a peptide molecule that must be synthesized from three amino acids, including the hard-to-come-by amino acid glycine. Glutathione is responsible for uh, removing uh, xenobiotics the foreign chemical compounds that are present in all of our pet bodies as, as a result of living in a chemical-laden world. Glycine is an amino acid essential for healthy function both in the digestive and nervous systems and assisting in the manufacturing of glutathione. But glycine is also important for other detoxification mechanisms. For instance, chlorine can only be detoxified from the body with the help of glycine and the amino acid taurine, so pets drinking city water benefit from this addition to a detox protocol. It can also read the body of heavy metals, plastic residues, including BPA. To assist in level 2 uh, of liver detoxification, it is recommended to, to give your pet supplements of taurine and n acetylcysteine or simply NEC. Taurine is an antioxidant amino acid that stabilizes cell membranes, particularly the cells of the skeletal muscle, the heart, the central nervous system, and white blood cells. Taurine makes the cells of the body more resilient to free radical attack. Although a minimal level of taurine is included in foods, taurine is easily depleted in stressed pets or pets with intestinal dysfunction. Taurine plays a very important role in neutralizing toxins produced by dysbiotic bacteria in the gut. This amino acid is also very important in the met metabolism and excretion of xenobiotics. Taurine is also an important component of bile, which is the body, produce, uh, which the body produces to digest fat. Adequate bile production is critical for killing intestinal parasites and yeast and assist in the removal of fat, soluble toxins, and oxidized cholesterol. Net is a cellular... Uh, antioxidant that boosts tissue glutathione levels and also plays a role in binding heavy metals. NEC protects against oxidative stress and is also uh, a potent free radical scavenger, particularly in the central nervous system. NAC also increases uh, the levels of intracellular glutathione. Other detoxifiers of the natural origin that you can use are milk thistle. The active ingredient in this herb is uh, silymarin which stimulates the uptake of glutathione from, from uh, liver cells. Milk thistle also assists in liver uh, cell regeneration. Schizandra fruit that is included in many traditional Chinese medicine formulas because it helps uh, to protect the liver against various toxins. Curcumin is what gives turmeric its yellow color. This potent antioxidant uh, supports both phase 1 and phase 2 uh, liver detoxification. Curcumin is known to have uh, anti-inflammatory activity because of its ability to inhibit pro-inflammatory um, enzymes. Recent studies also indicate curcumin may have a protective effect against mercury and other heavy metal exposure. Phosphatidylcholine, uh, cr- or shortly PC, is critical for a detoxification process known as methylation. Pets' bodies are wired with very potent hormones needed for emergencies. Adrenaline and noradrenaline serve a very valuable purpose in helping your pet through a crisis. However, these hormones are very damaging to body tissues with chronic exposure. The faster your pet's body can get rid of these hormones once they are are no longer needed, the less damage is done. The process of getting rid of these hormones is called uh, methylation. PC is required for this critical process of breaking down and eliminating these hormones. Resveratrol is an active ingredient in the plant known uh, as Japanese knotweed. Resveratrol, of course, is hailed as one of the best anti-cancer and anti-aging antioxidants ever discovered. But believe it or not, it also reduces liver enzyme elevations by reducing lipid peroxidation in the liver. In essence, it helps the liver clean house, flushing accumulations of fat so the organ can function optimally. The the, uh, catechins found in green tea dramatically modify cancer-causing molecules that damage cellular DNA. Inactivation and excretion of carcinogens is a big part of keeping your pet's body cancer-free for a lifetime, and green tea leaf extract extract, can be very beneficial for your pet. The green superfood known as uh, chlorella functions as a potent heavy metal, Chelator, as well as uh, detoxifier, binding up uh, excess toxic metals many better exposed to in the environment. Chlorella's uh, tough out of cell, uh, well, also binds environmental uh, pollutants in the gut, allowing them to be eliminated efficiently. Uh, superoxide bismutase also called sod, is a potent enzyme responsible for the removal of free radicals from your pet's body. Superoxide dismutase works by catalyzing the breakdown of superoxide radicals into oxygen and hydrogen. Superoxide radicals are toxic in the living cells of your pet's body and removing them is critical for your pet's lymphatic system to work optimally. And uh, the last one is dandelion leaf. It has superior blood cleansing benefits. Although dandelion also supports liver and gallbladder detoxification, it is especially helpful for, for kidney detoxification, assisting in the removal of blood-borne toxins excreted through the kidneys. Clean blood helps ensure uh, metabolic wastes get efficiently carried away from your pet's tissues and vital organs. As for the frequency of detoxification for your pet, it depends, of course, on the intensity and severity of the exposure to various harming agents and sources. Also, it's also best to consult the local veterinarian, preferably natural one in this case. Well, this is it for today. Hope it was interesting and useful. Have a nice day and goodbye. <coughs>
0: All right. Thank you, Zoya. That that was indeed very interesting and useful. Um, I hope that uh <clears throat> as we continue to share more of uh, Zoya's information here on the show, that uh, people take to heart, you know, caring for their pets in this way and um, not just kind of letting them go or just taking them to the vet. Like, there are many things that we can do on our own uh, to help them have better health as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, just to, just to wrap up the show for today, we've got a quick recipe. It's not a hard and fast, you know, one teaspoon of this, two teaspoons of that kind of recipe, but, uh, and some of you may have even tried this before or tried something similar, but, uh, something that my old roommate and I kind of stumbled upon once years ago, and, uh, it's a fun treat once in a while. So if you get a, a a whole chicken and you're going to roast it, um, it's usually about uh, 20 to 25 minutes per pound, so um, you can do your calculations on that. I usually let them go, you know, give or take uh, the size of the bird. I usually just cook it for an hour and a half uh, to be safe at 350 in, in the oven, but um, you can try to get really specific with the timing. If, Of course, if it's a much bigger bird, then you want to go for a little bit longer, um, but 20, 20 minutes per pound is a pretty good uh, estimate there. So. Take a chicken and uh, <clears throat> lay it on the pan uh, with the breasts facing up and uh, take a sharp knife and just slice the skin um, near the legs uh, on the edge of the breast, you know, like towards the back with the opening where you would put the, the stuffing into the cavity. You want to slice uh, the skin on each side and then take uh, two slices of bacon uh, for each side. So four slices, two per side and slide them underneath the skin. So you need to kind of get your fingers in there and separate the skin from the muscle tissue and then slide the bacon slices in there. And then uh, you can also do the same thing on the legs as well. You can make a little slice at the top of each of the drumsticks, separate the skin from the muscle tissue, and then put one slice of bacon inside there and try to get them all the way in, uh, get them kind of flattened out so they cover most of that layer of the breasts and the drumsticks And then season the top uh, to your liking. They usually do uh, salt, pepper, some garlic powder, um, rosemary, and thyme. And some sage goes nicely on that as well. And then uh, bake at uh, 350 for 20 minutes per pound. And when it comes out, you've got this uh, chicken that's totally saturated in bacon fat. It's really, really good. Um, the, uh, The chicken meat... Uh, I've usually found that the bacon will actually turn the meat slightly reddish or pinkish. So you might be wondering if it's done. But if you trust the time and you cook it for the right amount of time, uh, you shouldn't be concerned with that. And just remember that the bacon will actually turn it a slightly different color. It won't be white like you normally expect chicken to be. So mm-hmm. um, but that's it. That's bacon roasted chicken. And it, it's pretty simple. And uh, you can kind of play with it and do different variations. Um Sometimes it's fun to just slap the bacon right on top of the chicken, but I like doing it this way underneath the skin because then you, you also get the crispy chicken skin on top as well as the bacon fat all throughout the meat. So, hmm. Yeah.
5: That sounds great.
0: It really it does. <laughs> it's <is> very good. <laughs>
6: <Delicious>. <laughs> it sounds like a good way to keep make the um, – because a lot of times the chicken breast tends to be kind of dry. So having yeah. bacon mm-hmm. fat there it sounds like it would really be a way to keep it nice and juicy.
0: It does, yeah, it does do that. All right, well, that's uh that's our show for today. So I'd like to say uh thank you to our hosts and to everybody who's tuned in. Um, <clears throat> thank you to everybody in our chat for participating. And we just want to make a, a quick announcement um, that we will be moving the time of this show to Fridays at ten a m Eastern. Uh, instead of Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll be going to Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern, and we'll be starting that on Friday, June 5th. So next Monday, which, uh, if I look at my calendar here is the 1st, uh, we will not be having a health and wellness show on Monday the 1st. Uh, we will instead be starting our new schedule on Friday, um, June 5th. Did I say May 1st? I meant June 1st. <laughs> that, <laughs> June 1st is when we are not going to have a show. We'll be starting the new schedule June 5th on that Friday, and it'll be uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. So um, apologies to anybody who might not be able to make that time uh, to listen to the live show, but we always have the episodes available archived on Blog Talk Radio, um, and uh, we're hoping that this will kind of work out a little bit better for everybody to to be involved. Mm-hmm. So thanks again, and uh, we'll see you guys Next week on June 5th. Hi, everybody. Hi.